edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 4th, 2012. It's a Wednesday. This is episode 992 of the Survival Podcast, so we're only eight away from episode 1,000. Uh, today's show is going to be cool. I have the awesome Tanya Sawyer from Colorado Aquaponics on the line. Probably the most uh, knowledgeable person that I've ever spoken to on the subject of aquaponics. Lives and breathes it and makes a living with it every day. Can teach you how to do it at a commercial level, a community level, or an individual level. We're going to talk about all of those things and more today as soon as we bring Tanya on the line. Before I do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. Hey, you want all the stuff you can possibly think of to live that tactical lifestyle? Check out Sawtac. They've got it. From the Titanium Tactical Spork, SOE Tactical Gear, Magpul Magazines, and everything you can think of in between, you'll find it at Sawtac. Great service uh, because they're veteran-owned, veteran-operated. And where does the name Sawtooth come from? Well, they're in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. Check them out today at SawTac, S-A-W-T-A-C dot com. Best way to find them and all of our sponsors, of course, go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin. Then you know you're dealing with somebody that is actually a supporter of the Survival Podcast with our official endorsement. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. What I love about Knife Kits is anybody, and I mean anybody, who's got hands anyway and can uh, can manipulate a, a few hand tools, uh, can make knives with KnifeKits.com. Uh, if you want really exotic materials, Damascus steel, D2, D2 uh, tool steel, uh, horns for, you know, like, like buffalo horn for handle making, mammoth tusk for handle making, you name it, stuff like that, you can get it at Sawtooth. But if you're just getting started out and you just want to make a specific knife in a specific pattern with a certain type of handle material and do the fit, finish, and customization, final sharpening yourself, KnifeKits.com can help you with that. Now, if you're even thinking that sounds a little complicated, get a book or a DVD along with your stuff. If you're not sure what to get, call them up. They'll help you out. And you can get started making knife making making knives tomorrow with just a few hand tools. Uh, additionally, you know, if you've been if you've got like a small pistol or something, you've been thinking about making a holster for it yourself at a Kydex, they have kits for that too. They have all kinds of cool stuff at knife kits. I recommend that you get their print catalog, not just uh, check out their website, but you can find them at knifekits.com. Next up, check out tspcopper.com for some really cool copper medallions, uh, including the TSP official copper medallion. All of them are AOCS official barter currency, value two within the barter network. Check them out today. Remember, prices are for rolls of 20, not for a single coin. No, we don't charge $34 for a single copper coin. We charge about $34 for a roll of 20 coins. The more you buy, the bigger the discount you get. And MSB, you guys get 10% off all the coins at tspcopper.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade you do that you get exclusive content available only to members you get discounts from a lot of vendors uh, some that are sponsors some that are not but for instance both of the vendors that we talked about today do discounts so whenever you're buying from one of our sponsors check the uh, member support brigade first if you're a member already and make sure that they don't give a discount now do ev does every single sponsor do a discount no not all of them do not all of them can but many of them do and about 20 other companies that are not official sponsors are supporting vendors in the msb 
So it's a great deal. Basically, it's a membership that's going to pay for itself if you're buying things like ammo, seeds for your garden, tools for your garden, long-term storable foods. If you buy that stuff, the membership pays for itself. Otherwise, what you're doing is helping support the at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. And uh, if you uh, are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder such as a paramedic, and you email me uh, at jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com with service discount in the subject line before you join, I will spend you a special discount code that will help you get an even bigger savings because I'll give you a discount on your membership. It will apply to recurring uh, billing as well on your membership. With that wrapped up, we've got the housekeeping taken care of, and it's my pleasure now to introduce uh, Tanya Sawyer. Uh, Tanya and her husband own a small business called Colorado Aquaponics. They grow fish and produce together in a sustainable production system without agrochemicals. And, you know, she does really a great job of teaching as well. That's a huge part of their business. She was just in Dallas uh, and taught quite a few members of this audience exactly how to build their own aquaponics system. Uh, we've had her on before, and I'm glad to have her back. So with that, hey, Tanya, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, Jack, for having me back on. Hey, so um, if we could leave off just a little bit, uh, we were kind of chatting off air. We just, you guys just did a uh, workshop down in Dallas in conjunction with Rob Gray with AOCS, and you met a lot of folks from the audience. So you just kind of let people know how that went. Yeah, it was wonderful. I mean, and again, thanks for uh, for getting the word out to so many like-minded people who are excited about um, adding food security to part of their whether it's preparedness or just being really intelligent about uh, self sufficiency, but the group was very excited about uh, growing food and learning a lot. We use the motto, the more you know, the more you grow a lot during the course because uh, there were certain points when I think people were getting a little overwhelmed with information, but, you know, the more information you have sometimes, the better you are at being capable of doing the job. So, yeah, lots of really good feedback and very excited to get started on this journey of growing food. Well, uh, hopefully we'll be doing more things like that with you guys in the future. Uh, I know that it was uh, unfortunate that I couldn't get down there to be part of that event, but uh, the feedback I heard from the audience side was amazing, and they said you did a wonderful job. So so thanks for taking good care of folks. Um, sure. I do want to throw something out here, though, in the beginning, just for the people that maybe are turning into uh, survival podcasts for one of the first episodes or, or what have you, or didn't hear your original interview. And can we just start out with, for somebody that's going, what exactly is aquaponics? Kind of a basic understanding of what aquaponics is. Sure, yeah. Um, so aquaponics uh, is a combination of two um, individual growing mechanisms. The first one, aqua, is aquaculture. And I think a lot of people misunderstand that it's aqua means water, and that's true. Um, but aqua specifically means growing aquatic species like fish and shrimp and clams uh, and other things that would grow in water, particularly fresh water, in a recirculating system. And we integrate that with a hydroponics component, that's the ponics piece of aquaponics, where we grow a variety of plants, anywhere from, you know, lettuce greens, cooking, salad greens, herbs, tomatoes, pepper, squash, and even uh, root vegetables now are being commonly grown in aquaponics. And we do that by taking the water from the fish tanks, using the nutrients from that water that come from the fish, flowing it through the root systems of the plants, which, which always need nutrients, and we have an abundance of that with the fish systems. Using that as fertilizer, the plants absorb all those nutrients, which would otherwise be deadly to the fish, 
and by doing that, clean the water that gets returned to the fish tank. So we use about 10% of the water of traditional agriculture. We have no pesticides, no unnecessary agrochemicals or fertilizers. We have the cleanest, freshest, best quality food products. And the great thing is you get protein out of your garden, unlike if you just do soil gardening, you don't get that protein source. Um, so it's a pretty amazing way to grow food. It's still growing, you know, still growing plants, so you still have some work to do, but it is an amazing way to grow. Well, and you bring up a really good point about the uh, the freshness and the, and the how uh, unadulterated with chemicals the food is because it's it's one of the few systems of agricultural uh, that I know that you absolutely can't cheat because if you put anything in there that's not supposed to be in there, well, you're going to kill your fish and destroy the entire system. So it Correct. requires that it's chemical-free. Absolutely. Now, you know, we still have to have some elements of pest control, and that's what a lot of people assume. You know, you've got a, the pest control mechanisms that you use. For example, we talked the other day about things like olive oil or vinegar or what's called worm tea. You still have to manage pests. So when people say, well, it's pesticide-free, technically it's not agrochemicals, but it yep. is, you know, that we do have pest management. So we're not using any chemicals of any kind. So we, we think of, I think, sometimes things like aquaponics and think, okay, well, it's, it's a known science, it's a known thing, and it is what it is. But have there been any kind of new new things happening with aquaponics in the last year or so since you've been on? Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, aquaponics has technically been around for thousands of years. The Chinese, Peruvians uh, in Mexico, they use the techniques of flooding from fish ponds into garden spaces for thousands of years, but we're rediscovering that these techniques are very valuable in a world where we have drought issues or soil quality challenges or, yeah, this overabundance of fertilizer use that's that's um, kind of creating um, toxicity in soil. So what's really been happening in the last, I would say, year to two years um, has been creating, moving from the hobby scale into greater community and commercial scale production um, because now people are really starting to see this as a very viable way to feed larger groups of people. I mean, hobbyists is where a lot of this started, but, you know, we might as well make this into, to some extent, a business venture. Now, growing food is not an incredibly profitable business, but you may balance profit with, you know, social responsibility, environmental responsibility, you know, growing great food and say, I'm not in it to make a million dollars. I'm in it to make sure that we're a food secure, you know, city or the people that otherwise wouldn't have access to whole foods, you know, in, in an area like our community center at Grow House. That particular center is in one of the poorest communities in Denver, and it's about food justice there. It's getting food, quality food, into the hands of people who think, pe- you know, packets of ketchup are a, a vegetable. Um, You know, on that note, um, I've been going through, I have all of Mary Hallam's DVDs on aquaponics uh, out of of Australia. And one of the things the last time I went through his DVDs that he said that I found quite interesting was if you're doing this for commercial purposes, everybody thinks that the profit's in the protein, but the real profit off a a large-scale aquaponics system is mostly in the produce. Uh, Would you concur with that? Yep, okay, cool. absolutely true. And, you know, we're finding, interestingly enough, um, by Christmas time, actually, Murray just did a video with us. He was in Colorado for 
the Aquaponics Association Conference. My husband, J.D., uh, put the conference together along with Sylvia Bernstein and Gina Calavera, and um, they ran an amazing conference with people all over the world. Uh, there was about 300 people attending, and Murray came to our farm, Flourish Farm in Arvada, and then the grow house, and so he'll be doing a DVD around Christmas time of um, U.S.-based commercial farms. So it'll awesome. be a neat way to kind of see a lot, you know, beyond the DIY stuff that he's normally done, see more of these places. Um, but you're right. Produce is really the place where um, the revenue stream is located. Unless you have a location where fish is very, um, you don't get a lot of access to fish, but you also have to have a population that likes to eat fish. So I grew up in the mountains in Colorado, and the only fish we had as access to was trout, and, you know, we we liked it for what it was, but there wasn't an abundance of it, so we didn't eat trout much. And when you get more fish in a place where people may or may not be accustomed to eating fish, they don't instantly gravitate toward picking fish, if that makes sense. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think it's one of the, like, it really brings up not really an aquaponics topic, but a producer's topic of anything in the food sector, that the biggest thing a lot of small-scale producers are lacking in is understanding how to effectively market their product. Um, Absolutely. You know, being able to sit in Colorado and go, this is locally grown, uh, produced fish of whatever species, and I don't know what's, you know, maybe it is trout uh, even for you guys, or, but I mean, to be able to do something that's not traditionally available there and then market as local has a lot of clout right now. Yep. Yeah, local is a very sexy thing in the uh, restaurant. I mean, the term locavore didn't even exist a few years ago as people now are starting to get really excited and necessitating because of transportation costs, fuel costs, pollution, and carbon emissions. The, the concept of growing local food and as well getting to that local customer is so incredibly valuable. And, you know, now it's a luxury, now it's cool, but in a few years or 10, who knows, the time frame, we may not have the choices we have now. I mean, think about it. Possibly when you were growing up, as was when I was growing up, we didn't have strawberries in January. I mean, no. that's ridiculous because no. you didn't need to spend it 1,500 miles on a plane to get them to, you You know, just because you like the idea of having strawberries in January. Yeah, I, I completely concur with that. And I also think that the local movement now, there, there is kind of like, you know, when you say the sexy marketing thing, it, it's kind of like the yuppie customer and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just that demographic that's mostly yep. into it now. But I'm seeing it spread more and more into the more urban, blue-collar demographic as well because people are realizing it's not just about you know saving the planet on this, this huge scale. It's more about if we buy from local producers, if we work in our local economy, we're taking care of our community, and there's this, more, this bigger desire to build up the resiliency of individual communities, and that's what's going to be so important as you're talking about, you know, several years from now, I think we all know that there is some level of, at a minimum, extreme resource uh, depletion and economic discomfort on the way. And yeah. as those two collide together, we're going to have to rely on it, but it's good to see people now, like, actually seeing the value in doing it. And I think that's a big part of spreading that marketing beyond just the uppy customer down to the average everyday customer. They can't buy as much because they have less income. But uh, I think a lot of times if you start to deal directly with producers, you realize it's not as expensive as you think. It doesn't need to be. And and this is why, uh, you know, to us, and I, I hit this point home hard this this weekend, was, you know, we're at Cherry Creek Market, which is the highest and fanciest 
market, you know, farmer's market in the state. And, yeah, we can fetch a pretty penny for that particular product. And yet we're also, that same exact product is being sold at, at the grow house, this community that I mentioned, and it's a fair price. So if this person can pay 15 cents for that head of lettuce and the, you know, farmer's market people can pay, and this doesn't probably sound like it's a fully equitable scenario, but as far as food justice goes, everybody should have that fair shake. To, to, I mean, we're, we're parents, so as parents, we feel like everybody should deserve to have the ability to feed their family quality foods. It also well, means in communities which otherwise would have diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, you know, heart disease, uh, inflammatory rheumatoid arthritis issues, these communities are, are typically detrimented by, plagued by health issues, a lot of it food-oriented, and if we can reduce that and make a culture shift, I think, you know, we're, we're living in a better place. You know, and on the pricing discrepancies, too, I don't see that as a, as a conflict. Um, as long as everybody can go anywhere to buy it, because some people will choose to pay more. And as long as that's the case, right. I, I don't see a conflict. There was a, an old kind of funny movie that seems to have nothing to do with any of this, uh, and it was kind of stupid but kind of funny. It was called Dickie Roberts. Where the kid's gonna go back and the guy's gonna go back and learn how to be a kid because he never had a childhood. Right. And there's like one profound moment in the entire movie, and it's a guy that's a complete clown in the movie, just a useless individual. But he makes a statement about how he was one time he was in this uh, this pottery uh, store run by a Navajo Indian, and one one the one pot was sitting in the front and it was twenty dollars, and the same pot was in the back of the room uh, and it was ten dollars. It was the exact same piece. And the mm-hmm. guy asked him, why do you have it priced two different ways? He says, because some people want to pay 20 and some people want to pay 10, and I sell to both. And, right. and I think that, like, as, as a niche marketer, you have to be, like, some people want to come to this really fancy, you know, outdoor environment, this farmer's market, and some people want to go right to the guy that grew it, and you're going to pay different when you do that. And as long as it's by choice, that's great, because that means we're serving everybody. Well, and that it is really about choices and options and availability and food access. And, and I, I don't hike my prices, actually, for the, the Cherry Creek Farmer's Market because, honestly, to be competitive, and, in fact, the other market, uh, the other farmers will tell you this at the market, they kind of, you know, it's a self-policing activity, meaning, you know, if you set your price at $6 a pound and somebody else is charging $9 a pound, you're the target, you know, in that environment when everybody else is going, hey, you're bringing down everybody else's prices. And to some extent, talk about stimulating your local economy. The whole point is a dollar paid in any space that, that goes from the local farmer, from, you know, from the customer to the local farmer, you know, that's going to that's gonna move itself around multiple times over than if that same dollar went to Walmart. I mean... Absolutely. Or Costco or something like that. I mean, you're stimulating an economy that says we're keeping our dollars in this local space and I'll give it to Joe Bob and Joe Bob gives it to Sue and Sue gives it to Jack. And now we've got this local economy building versus sending it overseas or sending it to Mexico or wherever else. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we need everybody. <laughs> well, yeah, and I understand what you're saying there. And I think aquaponics is a great example of something that, really excels when we're selling in the local market because we're selling freshness. And I don't care how good a job you do of transporting it. If you stick it on a plane and fly it in from Argentina, it's not as fresh as if you removed it from its grow media this morning and are selling it to me at, you know, 11 o'clock in the afternoon. There's just no way those two models can compete. But let's get into what people can do to get involved with this. So um, 
I want to kind of talk about it at two levels, like the opportunities for people to uh, to get involved with this, doing it for themselves, the backyard producer, what's you know possible, and not maybe so much because you know, amazing things are possible. What's reasonable uh, for a, a home grower to expect? And then let's at, at, after that, let's kind of talk about doing it at a higher level, community center, schools, commercial, sure. that type yep. of thing. So, personally, just as I want to get started in this, I want to do this. It sounds neat. Where are they starting and what kind of production should they be looking at as a reasonable level to achieve within, let's say, a year or two of experience? Well, I would say, you know, for most people, the bug bites and they want to go big fast and they're ready to throw fish into a tank quickly. And, and those kind of things are very exciting. Um, and But just making sure that you, you know, plan the work and work the plan is really critical because we've seen too many fish uh, take a take a dive by getting too excited without thinking through everything. So on a personal scale, we do a lot of workshops, just like this one we did in Dallas uh, last weekend, uh, that really focus on how do you get up and running. And what we suggest is start with what's reasonable to produce, say, for your family. Um, potentially, I would say maybe that means extended family or neighbors or, you know, people in a school group or, or a place of worship that you can kind of work together. But if you personally wanted to get started, what the very first system that my husband and I built with our five-year-old daughter at the time was a 20-gallon aquarium. We have pictures of it on our website, coloradoaquaponics.com. And a 20-gallon aquarium with about uh, 15 goldfish in it, roughly, was enough to produce the, a variety of salad greens so that in our family we can have salad every night of the week. Now, that means, because a lot of people are like, wow, that's really fantastic, you have to plant it, you have to transplant, you have to harvest. So what I would say a typical rotational schedule would be once we build this system, um, and again, pictures are very helpful, it's hard to kind of explain it, but we have a fish tank, we have a water pump, the water pump pumps water into what's called a grow bed, which is... um, a, you can use a hydroponics tray. You could make something out of wood and line it. Um, it's just a space for your plants to grow. And instead of filling it with soil, we fill it with gravel or something called hydrogen. It's a media commonly used in hydroponics. You're just trying to stabilize the plant roots and create a space for your bacteria to colonize because it's actually the bacteria, good bacteria, that uh, are going to convert the ammonia and nitrites, which are common in fish uh, effluent, into the nutrients that the plants need. The better thing, though, is that fertilizers that we use on gardens today, unless you're composting yourself, a lot of the powder-based or liquid-based fertilizers you buy at garden centers for your gardens are NPK, which is nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. They're devoid of all the other micro and macronutrients that you need to get into your food products. And I guess the assumption is, well, I'll take vitamins and get the rest of that stuff. In an aquaponics system, you get all of the micro and macronutrients, and you might make some additions of calcium or potassium and iron. But other than that, everything else, boron, molybdenum, copper, selenium, uh, all of these things are in in the system through the food that you feed the fish, the effluent from the fish, and the nutrients that would be provided throughout that system. So you, I would say, go ahead. I would say, what do you think a reasonable, like a family that says we want to make pro, you know protein production a, a part of this for our families, we want protein to eat, 
um, a reasonable head count of fish per year for the backyards person to, to kind of set as a reasonable goal without, without basically turning their backyard into small-scale commercial production. Right. So um, this weekend we started those kinds of systems. We did the two-day intensive with a hands-on build, and we used what's called an IBC, an intermediate bulk container. Um, it's a 275-gallon container. It's white, and it has a metal cage around it with a, a valve at the bottom to discharge water. They're commonly used to transport syrup and honey and milk, but they're also used to transport chemicals, so be very careful if you were to purchase one of these and know where your uh, product comes from. What we do is cut that so that we have 12 inches of grow bed space, and then the bottom 150 gallons can be used for fish tank. In that fish tank, we could place up to, after the system's fully cycled, and there's a lot more details to that, but 60 fish could be living in that tank, and those fish could be bluegill, bass, uh, specifically like a hybrid bass or a smallmouth bass, um, trout if you live in a cold enough part of the country, say Colorado in the winter, Wyoming, you know, northern areas, Montana, Idaho, etc. Um, or tilapia, which is most common. Catfish are also an option. And so what you would do is um, put in different age groups, they're called cohorts of fish, so that you could literally harvest anywhere from, you know, three to ten, maybe even a dozen fish every week, and you would restock. So let's say, you know, today is October 3rd. I could pull out four fish today. Maybe I pull out four fish on Monday, four fish again the following week. So now I've got 12 fish that I pulled out of my system. I probably would want to work with a supplier so that, you know, by the middle of the month, I could get 12 more fingerlings to put back into my system. Now, do we have um, or, to worry about separating babies and adults with some of these species? Because uh, fish, you know, the big fish eating the little fish is pretty well known. Yeah, so trout would be specifically on that scale. Um, some bass species are pretty touchy like that. But uh, bluegill, tilapia, catfish, um they don't eat their young, um, okay. and so with that in mind, you could um, not only mix those species together, but you also could, so if you didn't like just tilapia every night of the week, you could have mm. tilapia and bluegill and, you know, catfish if you want. They have slightly different temperature ranges, but they would all adapt to about 70 degrees and live together pretty happily. Tilapia usually like a higher temperature, but yes, you are correct. So some species in trout would be an example of those that would eat their smaller cohorts. Yeah, the largemouth bass will definitely do it. Yeah. I don't know if you've worked with those, but the, if there's a if there's a two inch bass near a twelve inch bass, you have a yep, twelve inch bass with a couple <laughs> extra ounces of weight when you pull them out. I mean, that's yeah, <laughs> their, their mouth is made for it. Okay, um, so kind of moving on. So that's kind of the 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 uh, the, the, the self you know by yourself doing it on your own your backyard. What are the opportunities to kind of move this to like let's say a school level community center and what about that allows for maybe larger systems, more production, that type of thing? Right. So a lot of schools are are starting out with smaller systems, and then, you know, the kids get so excited about it or they actually want to grow enough food for the kids to be able to consume um, either as snacks or, in fact, one school that we're working with is, is beginning to build out um, not only with soil-based gardens but um, – through aquaponics, uh, a community-supported agriculture where their families actually purchase shares to support 
the growing um, in operating costs. And so in a school environment, what we're seeing is a lot of these groups that are starting to put in slightly bigger fish tanks. One school in particular that we're working with has uh, their uh, um, technical high school, and so they teach a lot of, you know, anything from auto mechanics, drafting, accounting, computer, you know, computers uh, education, and they also have a culinary program. And so one of the big uh, emphasis items in the future is to have the culinary team not only learn how to grow it, but then, you know, how to properly prepare it. So we're seeing schools that are starting to really take this challenge. A really exceptional example of this is a high school in Chicago that's actually called uh, Chicago um, High School for Agricultural um, Sustainability or something like that. Its its initials are C-H-A-S. And they have a nice aquaponic system that is, uh, you know, designed not only to support some of the food production for the school, but to really showcase and, and get students up and running. I mean, kids are our future farmers. And, you know, again, when I was young, we were farmers. And so we weren't always the coolest kids in school, but we were definitely necessary. And, and in the future, there's going to be a lot more jobs that I think are really going to be necessary. I mean, we can't eat our computers. So coming from a, a computer career, I realize that eating food is a little bit more uh, necessary sometimes than zeros and ones are in any given day. So what we're seeing is a huge push, like you're saying, retirement centers, um, prisons. My husband just finished um, a feasibility study for a Denver-based jail facility who would like to have uh, inmates actually participate in growing food for the, you know, jail population. And in that scenario, they're not looking necessarily to turn a profit because they would never sell the product outside of the jail facility. Instead, they would use the cost that they would normally purchase in food and offset it so that it's, you know, kind of a zero-sum game is their attempt. We're even seeing military facilities that are starting to look at what they would consider as food security instead of shipping food someplace you know, can you get up and running potentially at a base and grow food in that location? So there's definitely tons of people that are really starting to look at this. And I think as a future, innovation and everyone kind of um, taking this on, I mean, whether it's businesses, schools, government entities, putting it on rooftops, apartment buildings. In Australia, many of the apartment buildings actually have personal scale aquaponic systems as part of your balcony. It's just, you know, it's already there when you arrive. It's ready to go. It's up to you to plant it up um, and harvest from it. But they have such a culture related to food production that, you know, and and personal, um, you know, sustainability that, uh, you know, everybody's on board with this. So I think we'll see a lot more of that in the future. Uh, And I think there's like a tremendous opportunity in just urban rooftops. I mean, it's just this massive footprint of space uh, that's, that's going to waste. And when we look at the production per square foot of an aquaponics system, it really is at a level that is, is beyond anything that you can do with, let's say, container gardening or something like that. It just, sure. it, it takes more work as far as getting a system balanced and maintained, but it just can't, a container garden can't compete uh, on a rooftop with, at least in my estimation, a mid-sized to large uh, aquaponics uh, uh, setup. Right. 
And, you know, the, the funny thing about aquaponics is, having been a soil gardener in the past, aquaponics is easy and it's hard. I say it's easy <laughs> because I have killed so many plants by overwatering or underwatering so many times. And I've never, ever once had that issue with aquaponics, not one time, because the water is circulating itself. You know, every now and again we have a pump failure, but I've still not lost a plant yet. Related to that, it just adds a new element of, you know, water flow dynamics and maintaining, you know, the fish. But literally, once your fish are established, once your system is established, the bacteria are established, if you know what you're doing, you're feeding the fish every day, you're, you know, seeding, transplanting, and harvesting, which is what you'd be doing in a container garden anyway. And you're right, the abundance can be significantly greater um, just because the energy in a plant, instead of putting down root systems through hard clay soil and, and competing with weeds and waiting for that water and seeing if the soil has enough nutrients, everything in the aquaponic system is provided to that plant. You know, the water's there, the oxygen is in the water, um, the nutrients are all there, it's nice and warm, the temperature is just right seasonally, and so the plant just puts all of its energy effort into growing up and out instead of, you know, trying to bust through hard soil, for example. So we get a lot greater production because of that. Yeah, definitely, and I, I think that... Uh... It it, it it allows people to realize, I, what I'm trying to say is that people should realize that like when you get started, you used a very important word there, you know, if you know what you're doing. When you get started with anything new for the first time, you won't completely know what you're doing no matter how much instruction you get. Some of it comes from hands-on experience and yeah. you're probably going to experience some fins up episodes, but that's part of the learning curve. Yeah, and you know, we've done this for years and every day is a new learning experience for us and you know, we, we met with people at this conference who, you know, like Dr. James Ricosi, who's been doing this for 20 years. He was, we call him the, the uh, father of aquaponics because he started the first major commercial site system at the University of Virgin Islands and, you know, did his Ph.D. research in this. And to hear some of the things that he went through and the experiences and understanding it, this is what everybody's going to go through because, you know, you're not good at something until you've done it for a while. Absolutely. Um, so when we look at this as a, uh, as a food production system, it seems like it solves a lot of problems. What are some of the, the problems with, with modern distribution, modern agriculture that we're really able to address well with aquaponics? Well, I'd say first and foremost, because we live in an incredibly dry state, we're in Colorado, and in fact, my husband went to a meeting last night related to drought in Colorado and predictions of uh, water availability in the future. We've got a lot of farmers here that have suffered terribly, and I know throughout the U.S. that's very true. Um, on the flip side, our friends in Florida, Gina and Tanya, who run Green Acre Aquaponics, they receive something like, you know, 60-some-odd days of rain and everything got so drenched and saturated that field crops were many times destroyed just from an overabundance of water. So I think, you know, weather patterns, water, uh, either drought or an overabundance, not being able to control those sorts of things really has a detriment on, you know, a predictable crop schedule for a farmer. Um, and, you know, that's a huge challenge that we really, really have to focus on. If water is, is available in too much or too little quantity, the other part of that is, you know, water that's available may or may not be of good quality to use for field crops. 
so if we can find ways to go through filtration mechanisms to get that water into our system, the beauty of aquaponics is we only consume about 10% of of water to fill that system up and to top it off. So when we're growing things, you know, like lettuces and, and herbs and tomatoes and peppers, we're consuming so much less because it's not evaporating, it's not just seeping into the soil, it's not washing away, you know, over the top. And again, we're not competing with weeds, so, you know, the water is being directed specifically at the crop. And water to me is one of those things that as precious as food will be in the future, I think water is one of those very precious entities. I mean, you know, we need to make sure that we're using it as conservatively as possible. And I know that as I grew up on a well, that we didn't have a lot of water as a child, and so we were very, very super conscious about that. Well, and I think where you live, you get that driven home to you regularly. I think it's hard for a person in Florida to yep. understand, you know, water is not readily available. Well, if you live in, you know, arid regions like Colorado or Arizona or Wyoming, in three very different ways, the answer is no, it's not readily available. Right. Well, and Florida actually experienced this, a, you know, a couple of years back. They had a terrible drought for quite some time, and now they're getting kind of the reverse of that. Um, and so kind of leading into the next concept here is, you know, some of these shifts that we're seeing with um, just environmental conditions and weather patterns and, you know, scorching heat that we experienced all across the U.S. this year um, some of that stuff will also be affecting our food growing capabilities in the future. So trying to find ways that we can control that. And one of the discussions we had is growing inside warehouse-like buildings versus, you know, growing out in a field crop where you can't control those massive environmental shifts of scorching heat or freezing uh, temperatures or, um, you know, as crops this year, some crops got, farmers got their crops going this year but ran out of water, say, in September, so they'll never bring that crop to market. Um, And so hopefully using some of these alternate techniques, I mean, we're not solving the corn and wheat and soybean industry challenges, but we can find better ways to grow, you know, more of our specific vegetables and fruits. Uh, I think people could do with a little less corn and soybean in their diet anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You know, with food scarcity in the future, I mean, honestly, I hate to say it because I don't think food scarcity is a good thing, but considering the diseases related to food abundance that we have experienced, it may not be bad, like you're saying, to eliminate some of the unnecessary processed foods which come from corn and soy bases. As long as we can replace it with something substantial, and I think that's the key. Yeah. Like One of the things that aquaponics has going for it is by its very nature, it's intensive. So right. we're able to produce a lot more in a much smaller area, um, and it's also – I have never seen – especially like green leafy vegetables, which are not huge in caloric intake, but huge in mineral, nutrient, vitamin intake, grow faster any place than in an aquaponics system. And some of these things like lettuce, leaf lettuces and all, you can't even effectively grow them in a place like Texas in the middle of the summer unless you have the cooling nature of the aquaponics root-based system down in that growing media. So it allows us to rapid, much more rapidly replace some of the food production than something like, you know, permaculture, which I'm huge into, but there's a transitional period to take a piece of land that somebody's abused for 40 years 
and, and heal it where I can set up an aquaponics system. If I had 40 acres, I could take a quarter of an acre and dedicate it to aquaponics and be in production in the first year and get really great results. Yeah, and that's that's really what we're looking at. And, and what a number of the farm uh, aquaponics farmers, and this is why it was so exciting to get so many people together that are really pushing to build this industry. It's a brand-new industry, really, you know, we're following to some extent on the heels of what hydroponic booms and busts over the last few years. But I think this has a lot, you know, it's got some really great characteristics. We're seeing a lot of these, uh, what will become these aquaponic farms um, that will support a local group, you know, whether it's community focused or whether it's commercially viable. And yeah, doing this in an acre or less and really producing a lot of food. One of the things that came up during the, the discussion this weekend, and, and it comes up often, is I want to produce a lot of food for my family, but let's say it's the middle of winter, and because of the light timing, like, you know, you only get maybe six or eight or nine hours of sunlight, because of differences in temperature, there's a whole lot of factors to really consider when we're talking about plants, and we can't fake Mother Nature, even in an aquaponic system. I'd like to be able to, but it's challenging. If we were to grow purely indoors, then you can start faking a little bit because you're the one being Mother Nature where you can put lights on the system and control temperature very specifically. And what I'm still waiting to hear, and I think a lot of people in the aquaponics industry is, is it viable and financially appropriate to grow in a warehouse environment? So like you said, you couldn't grow lettuce in aquaponics or or otherwise potentially in the middle of Texas when it gets to 100 degrees, even if the we saw this in our own system this year, yes, the root system stays cooler, but some forms of lettuce just can't take that intensity Correct. of heat or light, and they bolt right away. So Correct. even when their root system is is um, temperately controlled, uh, they're taking their cues from other things besides temperature, like intensity of light. You know, I think that that actually, to me, is better addressed by choosing the appropriate plants for the appropriate season. Absolutely. And then if we're going to do full climate control type things, then we don't need to be doing it year-round. So if we, if you said to me, like, okay, I want to grow under lights in a warehouse, well, if you've got eight or nine months out of the year where the solar exposure, temperatures, et cetera, are more than adequate, then what we need is some kind of a warehouse-type environment that is like a convertible, right? So that we can open it up and we can let the light and temperature control be natural. And when in a real heat intensive climate, we can go into a somewhat cooled environment with, with lighting, or we yep. can go in a warmed environment in, in a northern climate. That seems to make more sense than just doing it all, all, all straight up in, you know, indoors. Yeah. And I agree completely. And, Actually, during one of the presentations um, at the conference, it was a lighting uh, group that has researched dozens and dozens of different, like, LED lights, which are becoming very popular. And his end result was, you know, if you're paying in the hundreds of dollars, you'll never get anything worthwhile out of that light. Um, but the point that he made was, is sunlight really free? Like, we assume that the sunlight that we get is free in the sense that, gosh, you're growing your plants in the most natural way and sunlight provides that, which is absolutely true, but he's like, then consider what are you consuming in other ways to heat or cool, you know, or maintain some uh, some stable conditions for those plants. So I'll give you a couple examples. We are we have a greenhouse here 
in Colorado. And during the summer months, for all the gallons of water that we save in our aquaponics system, we wind up putting into uh, a wall, and, and this doesn't make sense in all parts of the country, but since we're so dry in Colorado, it's like a swamp cooler. It's a wet wall, and water trickles through these aspen pads and is recirculated. And so you'd assume, okay, well, it's recirculating. We're not using very much water. But surprisingly, a couple hundred gallons can be sucked down through evaporation on really incredibly hot days as that water transpires through the greenhouse. So it kills me that on one side we can serve so much so that we can waste it in a cooling effort. <laughs> yeah. Or vice versa in the winter when we have to heat so much of the greenhouse space. Um, so as we move forward, I think one piece to make aquaponics as potentially, you know, the ultimate in sustainability is to really take into consideration greenhouse-like structures that are very different than what we see with these glass and steel or, you know, polycarbonate and steel frame structures in the future, you know, double hard wall, north wall, for example, and yeah. a, a, a sun angles that are um, and roof angles that are designed to take the different seasonal aspects of sun and redirect, for instance, and reflect in the summer so that you're not penetrating a crop with just massive, you know, uh, light intensity, but you're bouncing it off of a, the north wall, for example, so that you're really softening that heat intensity well, my as well is, as light. My thought has always been that greenhouses need to be, as I was talking about, and it's actually one of the idea came to me when you mentioned a warehouse, more convertible. So right. that in the summer, I'm, 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 you know, pulling out panels that, that are, you know, generally glass or polycarb or whatever they are. And in their place, we're using something like shade cloth so yep. that we can, we, I mean, you can knock down the sun's intensity 20, 30% with shade cloth just by putting it there. And, and, yep. and to me, that's like, you know, when I look at, um, aquaponics, if you don't, bring the greenhouse component in with it, I don't think it, it's it's wrong in any way. I just don't think you can reach its full potential. And I think a lot of people that do it successfully without um, greenhouses, they're doing it in the subtropics and tropics where their climate's very stable. So once they yeah. once they figure out what works and what doesn't work, it works the same all year long, right? You know, because yeah. the only thing down there you got to worry about is whether it's raining or not. I got aquaponics, I don't care. Right. Right. But, right. Then we move into the temperate, the cool temperate, the hot temperate regions, the arid, the wet. All of these things, we have very big seasonal variations, and we've got to have some way to moderate that if we're yeah. going to make year-round production possible, which is like one of the things that makes it more productive is that we can produce year-round if we do it the right way. Sure. And you know what's funny? Uh, in I totally agree with what you're saying because – that's what, when you go from being a hobbyist or a community-oriented, hey, we're producing for, you know, our neighborhood, into a commercial, now we've got to make a dollar on every single hole in a raft or we won't make our operating costs. You're now looking at a scenario, and this is why the guy's point was, is the sun free? Because in the summer, when plants get really, really hot, they slow down their growth activity if you put shade cloth in, they slow down their growth activity. You know, there's a lot of factors that, that prevent them from properly photosynthesizing or vegetating or whatever that is. 
And what's interesting is we'll see our crops in the middle of summer go from, say, a 30-day cycle up to maybe a 40-day cycle. Mm. So now if I'm a commercial producer and I'm hitting up against 10 extra days before I can take a product to market or I take my product to market at 30 days and it weighs three pounds less, I'm starting to see a financial um, situation that's different. In the winter, same deal. You know, I may have a product that because of the coldness or because of the fact that I only have maybe an eight-hour daylight time frame, now I'm in a situation where, you know, my production rates are suddenly 60 days for that same product that I could grow, say, in the spring or fall in, you know, exactly 30 days. You so know... the point of growing inside a greenhouse or growing in a warehouse environment was if you could control and say predictably – we have these lights, this temperature, this arrangement. I can go to market every 30 days with exactly the same product, with exactly the same weight. There's no variability whatsoever, and you're not doing battle against all those things. There may be a trade-off that makes it you know, that much more financially viable. And the way I see that working then is we have a, a plethora of warehouse space in this country, and the abandoned warehouse may not be the ideal location. What we also have is a plethora of companies who, due to past production cycles, have built out very large structures that are now using 50% or 70% or 60% of that space. Yep. If that area is already being heated and cooled anyway and maintained at a readily reasonable temperature, my only additional input to dedicate some of that space to aquaponics is the components themselves, the day-to-day -day inputs of feed and things like that, and lighting. Now I'm not bringing the input of heat and cooling in there. I'm utilizing a place where it's being wasted. Right, right. Yep. So that, I think, is maybe one way that could work. Because I, I just I can't financially in my head get how you can afford to heat and cool a large warehouse and make – the margins necessary on those types of products to make that work? Well, the only other way that we could compare this, um, and good, bad, or otherwise, people can make their own judgments, is, you know, in Colorado, we have a legal medical marijuana industry. Sure. And they grow only in warehouses. Not one grower ever grows in a greenhouse, for all number of reasons. But they want the very specific controllable actions related to their plant activity, and because of that, they have very specific growth rates, and, and to use that information could potentially apply to um, any variety of the, you know, food growing that we have. The challenge is, is that their revenue capabilities yeah. <laughs> far out, you know, I mean, I'd have to sell an entire greenhouse of lettuce to make what they, set, you oh, know, what they plant. could make in about, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's so a it's not really, uh, <laughs> yeah, not really equitable. I got a, a quick little anecdotal story for you. We were in, uh, we were seeing our accountant for some follow up uh, on last year's taxes this summer, and we had to go to a different office than we normally go to because they, you know, do things differently at tax time than in the regular time of year. And there was a, a hydroponics store there, and I go in and I'm talking to the guy, and I was wearing one of my company T-shirts, which kind of looks official in some weird way. I guess, and he was being really paranoid, and I'm like, dude, I just was asking about, you know, and it hit me after I left that he was probably paranoid because his main business are probably uh, 20-somethings in, uh, you know, uh, white kids with dreadlocks and, uh, and heavy metal t-shirts, 
Uh, even though that's not what he's selling there, he's selling the components that they're using. Right. And I do think that, like, they're, like, you, like you said, you can make your own ethical moral judgments there, but the research that, that these people have done to both legally and illegally do this is pretty intensive, and they do know what works. And I think maybe we can learn, especially from the legal side of things, because they're probably going to be more open with their research, so to speak, uh, what what they've done that works. But I, I just, again, I don't know what we sell at a margin or even you know 10% of the margin of something like that product. Well, and we've actually been very fortunate. Uh, on the one hand, where everyone hears a word like grow house, which is our community center, and assumes that that must be growing that, you know, we we say we tell them culinary herbs are like, oh, yeah, herbs. Hey, man, we're like, no, we love great here. But we have had actually quite a few interns that have an immense knowledge. I mean, it is so profound, the capabilities they have achieved by growing something, you know, that, that has a little bit touchier disposition to grow. And, you know, when you can apply those concepts of pest management and biosecurity, meaning, you know, don't bring bugs in and make sure your hands are clean so you're not spreading the possibility of, you know, E. coli or salmonella or listeria. Or I mean, they have, down to the science, uh, really applied that. And we've got to do those same kind of things with food safety and security so that, you know, some aquaponic farmer doesn't create an issue. The good thing is aquaponics doesn't have issues with um E. coli and salmonella, and I had kids the other day that asked me, well, if you had salmon in your salmon system, would you get salmonella? <laughs> like, no, not really. Oh. And you'd be, imagine, you'd be amazed at adults that think the same thing. See, and this is but why there's so much work to do in this world. And I don't just mean yeah. I mean food production, local food production, knowledge of the food system, like it's been lost. I, I cry inside every time. I go to a grocery store and buy something from the produce section and have to tell the 16-year-old little girl that's running the cash register what it is. Right, it, right. <laughs> it just makes you feel like, really, you don't know what a poblano pepper is? And in poblano pepper, I can give you, but like, you know, a parsnip. She's like, I don't have white carrots. So I'm like, oh, yeah. I just, you know, and it's not like you, you really, like, it's not anything against them. You just feel bad for the system that they're in that is so distanced them from this production capacity and to me it's part of why why is you know this preparedness industry so to speak why we're preparing in the first place because those people are not going to know what to do when you just can't go to McDonald's even for a week let alone a month well so that's what i want to say to your audience it's which is it's great i think as adults to make a decision to be prepared and think more sustainably and be self-reliant teach kids, your kids, somebody else's kids, uh, you know, a school, whatever, like make it, an, uh, make it an opportunity to take the next generation who is possibly too driven toward McDonald's or, or any of those other things or not really interested in doing anything that doesn't involve an iPad, an iPhone, a, a device, a TV, a, a, you know, media-based stimulation, like get them back into what the real things that we all grew up doing and you know, this isn't new stuff again. This is stuff that we used to do normally. We're just trying to re revise what new normal means to say, hey, growing food is, it doesn't need to be cool and, and exciting. It needs to be the norm. <laughs> yeah. It was normal at one time. It needs to be normal again. But but I think that, they, like, even those, those kids that are so plugged in or what have you, because I, I have my iPhone, I have my, sure. you know, all my gadgets and gear. I'm known as, like, a tech guy, even though I think I'm overrated. <laughs> Some people are like, like, I don't know what you think I know. But 
Um, but I know that when I am out in my garden or I'm working in my greenhouse or even I'm just researching seed varieties for next yeah. year, it's very it's very fulfilling. And I have yet to meet a person that once they give it a fair shake. So with kids, sometimes you gotta kick them in the butt and make them give something a fair shake. But I've yet to meet a person yet that when they give it a fair shake doesn't find a certain solace and fulfillment in it. And I think it's because innately as human beings, it's it's part of how we evolved. And we're only a couple generations away from when everybody knew what the dirt felt like under their fingernails. Yeah. And I don't think that gets that that gets removed from the gene pool in one or two generations. I just don't think it's I possible, thankfully. I hope not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's what um, the Grow House, which is a nonprofit, and uh, Adam Brock and, and Kobe Gould, who run it, um, do an amazing job of making sure that youth are a big focus. And every year they run a program called Seed to Seed, and it's a 16-week uh, program, if I remember, during the summer season. And, you know, they work with all kinds of youth that it's amazing to see kids, like I said, who, uh, you know, possibly a packet of ketchup was, or, or the tomato, lettuce, and, and onion that they got on their Big Mac was the closest thing to full plates of vegetables and vegetable servings and French fries. And to come out of the program and be so incredibly excited and capable of, you know, growing food, and that energy and excitement means, you know, where they may have been, having challenges in school or difficulty with the law or, you know, some other challenge, they are now redirecting not only that excitement in helping to grow uh, food, but grow a community that also has that excitement. It's contagious. I mean, it really is truly, I think, the revolution that we need is to get kids excited about things that have value, you know, in the future. You know, you're almost like a national, uh, hit, you know, successful national uh, healthy uh, marketing campaign there because the age-old dilemma for parents, how do you get Johnny and Susie to eat their vegetables? Well, parents, I got an answer for you. If Johnny and Susie grow their vegetables, yeah. they'll eat them happily. The, 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 the whole dynamic changes from a piece of broccoli on the plate being broccoli mom and dad made you eat to be, you grew that. I Most kids I know are willing to try anything they grew themselves. They may not like it. We don't all like everything, right? right. But, but they'll try it, and the stuff they like, they'll be happy to eat after that. What's funny is when we have the kids at the farm and when we have, you know, food growing here, the kids are, oddly enough, even less likely to eat it when it's on their plate like you served it to them because somehow that serving of the food makes it seem like they need to, to go against it. It's like telling them to put their shoes on or put your yeah. jacket on. I don't want to. I don't want to. But we take them to the farm, and the second they get in, they start grabbing food and putting it in their mouth like, okay, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. Like something in them knows that a well, snack can come from a whole real out of the ground or out of an aquaponics system food product, and they can eat it right then and there. Well, you know the thing with the the shoes, you're onto another psychological thing there. Like when the kids do start to grow up a little bit, and you try to put their shoes on them, not only do they say no, what's the next words out of their mouth? I can do it myself. Yeah, I can do it myself, right? Right. <laughs> right? So you're playing to that when you know. Well, they're doing it themselves. It's not somebody decided this is what you get. And, and yep. I think the beautiful thing is, like, if you can really build up a good, resilient food source like an aquaponic system, like a permaculture system, there's no junk food. So yep. if they want to eat mostly something, let them go. They'll get tired of it. They'll eat something else. It's like it's like turning them loose in a candy store where everything's good for them. Yep. 
Well, and that's why my daughter loves to help harvest. She's not as she doesn't love transplanting as much. Although what's funny is the kids will help us transplant, and they will eat the little shoot of whatever we're transplanting. And I'll yeah. come back and look at where they just planted everything, and there'll be little dirt pods because <laughs> they ate the top off of each one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I've always said that the, the pepperoni of uh, fruits and vegetables is strawberries. And, oh, and I, they love those. Yeah, and what I mean by that is, like, you'll find the occasional kid that doesn't like strawberries. But if, if you take 20 Little Leaguers to Chuck E. Cheese and go, what do you want on your pizza? 19 of the 20 are going to yell pepperoni. And they might not want anything else, but they'll eat pepperoni. And the other kid probably just wants cheese, right? So, like, with strawberries, with kids, you you want your fruit now. You want strawberries, 19 out of 20 are going to suck strawberries down like no tomorrow. And a fresh-grown, aquaponics-grown strawberry is just amazing. Well, one thing I'll say to that for those people out there that have kids and are considering aquaponics systems, we grow a lot of strawberries, and the kids do flock to those first. And then my son always goes behind the tanks and looks for the tilapia that got a little too ambitious when they were eating and lurched themselves out of the tank. Um, but the third thing that the kids always go to is we have a plant called stevia, and people now know it as the new sweetener that's all natural. Sure. And it grows amazingly well in aquaponics. It's a nice... Um, small leaf uh, plant, and what I think is really phenomenal is if you were to, to take that on and grow that, you know, the food that is sugared that you consume could now be replaced with something else that you grow. I mean, you're not going to use it for cookies per se, but I do actually throw it into zucchini bread or muffins and use that more as a sweetener so that you're even, you know, if you're not using honey from your own bees, you know, this would be a nice additive as well, and not something you'd ever expect when you're thinking lettuce, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think that, uh, like, the biggest thing that we can do is just get people started in some way on any level, on any level of food production. Yep. Now, I, one thing you were talking about there with the fish, it made me think of was also that, like, for a lot of people that are looking to get into protein production – I don't know exactly what it is, but filleting a tilapia just isn't as difficult emotionally as cutting a chicken's throat. The fish just don't, I don't mean any offense to fish, but they just don't have the personality of higher level life forms. And I think it's a, maybe a soft entry for the, the reality that all protein involves taking a life. Right. And, you know, it is something growing up and we, we created and, and produced all forms of protein, whether it was goats or chickens. And so, yeah, when we'd go catch a fish, that's what we'd do. We didn't own anything that would allow us to have our own fish to do that with. But it wasn't a big deal. Well, my husband recently, we went through uh, butchering some of our chickens here at home, and that was a very challenging thing. He'd never experienced that before, and it really pushed hard against what he felt comfortable with. But he had grown up on a river back east and, and had fished all of his life. And so cutting a fish, you know, was like second nature to him. What I will say with filleting is don't bother. Um, you'll get a lot more meat with tilapia and, in fact, most fish um, if you gut them and then put them straight onto the barbecue with, you know, head and, and tail and everything in place. And then, um, you know, you'll get a lot more meat. Some people even really start to love the crunchy texture of the skin. Um, mm. So use use an alternate form of, uh, you don't bother with trying to cut the meat out of a fish. It just isn't really worth it. And then, yeah, use all the herbs that you've grown. I mean, 
you know, put some rosemary and thyme, some cilantro, maybe some peppers, and stuff the cavity of that fish, wrap it in foil if you don't like a crusty uh, skin texture. And, oh, man, it just comes out so tasty. Mix that with a nice salad and, you know, some strawberries that you grew, and you've got an amazing meal that would have transported 16,000 miles to get to you from China and Mexico and, you know, all over the, the continents to, to get to your plate otherwise. I got a great wild edible to add to that when seasoning fish. Everybody knows that lemon juice and fish go together well, uh, and I don't know that you have these in uh, in Colorado, but from, let's say, Texas all the way to Maine in the eastern United States, one of the most common, eastern Texas anyway, one of the most common wild trees is sumac. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, we have them here. Oh, my God. I mean, it's just it's just a lemonade tree and uh, a few sprigs of uh, sumac, and everybody wears poison, poison sumac, it is is white and the berries hang down. If it's going up and they're red, it's not. Uh, it's it's a pretty easy identification thing. And, and in fact, I've seen very little poison sumac uh, in all my days, but I've seen a lot of staghorn and smooth. And those berries used cooked into fish, the way you're describing, are just beautiful. The way they infuse that kind of lemony uh, tart flavor that takes away some of the fishiness, which is a big part of why they use lemon with fish. Um, and you're right about not filleting them. I just kind of generically say that. But uh, if you look at the way most uh, Asians prepare fish, and those are like that's like fish ground zero. Like if there's a yep. if there's a gallon of water, they put a fish in it. You know, there's there's no mosquitoes because there's a fish everywhere. Um, yep. They always cook head on, tail on, skin on, whole. If they cut a fish up, it's more of a staking. You know, and and the, the head's there. And uh, you know, one of my really good friends, it's a kind of a gourmet cook says, that, you know, if you take the skin and the bones away from the fish when you cook it, there's a lot of flavor that you've just thrown away, you know. Well, it's and like taking fat off a of steak. I mean, for those that eat steak, and, sinful. you know, my brother-in-law's a chef. <laughs> yeah, he's like, why did you just cut all that off? I'm like, because I hate eating fat. He's like, you just ruined it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, at least cook well, it with a fat Well, thank you, because I didn't know about sumac, so I'm very excited to try this because I have a ton of sumac trees in my backyard, so I'm going to have to test this Oh, out. yeah, sumac for anything that you would flavor with lemon. Now, the, the berries have are very uh, thin-skinned and are seeded, so it has to always do it in a way that it's easy to remove after you're done using it, but it's basically absorbic acid. So it's, right. it's it, you know, just taste it. If you if you just rub your fingers on some, some mature uh, sumac berries and taste your fingertips and uh, you'll get a real good feel for it, but it's very lemony uh, and very it's like a floral lemon flavor. Um, right. As we're wrapping up here, though, Tanya, are there some advice you could give to people that just want to get started or get more involved with aquaponics in the first place? I mean, to me, as I'm I'm an educator, and so what I'm passionate about is trying to prevent people from making treacherous mistakes that will cause them to feel like failures in such a way they're like, well, aquaponics doesn't work or, or I'm terrible at this or, or whatever the case is, the more you know, the more you'll grow. And, and to get educated in what it is that you're trying to do, it's worth picking up a book or joining the aquaponics community or check out our website. Like I mentioned, we have tons of resources on there um, that are all about aquaponics. Attending a course, we have uh, courses coming up in Denver October 1st or sorry, let's try that again, October 21st through the 30th, and again, November 1st through the 4th, which is a um, complete aquaponic farming course, so it's a four-day workshop with uh, a greenhouse, sustainable greenhouse, and uh, in fish farming intensive on October 31st, 
And again, education is such a great way. You're going to have some trial and error, but you might as well skip as much of that and get to growing great food faster uh, by just knowing what you're doing. You know, Tanya, I'll make sure I put links to your uh, website, but if you'll, uh, you know, with regularity, send me little blurbs and links to pages where people can sign up about courses that you're yep. running, I will always make them available to this audience for you, uh, right. especially after the feedback I got from what you guys did in Dallas. Um, well, and, and feedback was Dallas, unbelievable. Good. I'm so glad. I mean, the, the, I, what I think is great is around the country, um, we've got over 8,000 members now all around the world. I think it's very worthwhile. There's so many groups of people that say, hey, you know, in this neighborhood or this school or this community group, we want to get 10 or 15 or 20 people together and learn how to do this together so that we can all ask each other questions and support each other doing this. It's a great way to, you know, bring me out or bring my husband out or, or to get someone else in that lives or works nearby in aquaponics to show you how to do it and, and get you up to speed, and then you've got great resources to, to work with in the future. So I'll definitely get those to you. Absolutely, and we'll do what we can to promote them. And, again, the website, folks, is Colorado aquaponics.com and you have like you said courses there you have like an online workshop people can do as well don't you we do have an online workshop and I need to um, I'm going to actually redo that in the next month or two to add a lot of new video content um, it's PowerPoint based which is somewhat one dimensional but it is you know it's me talking through all this stuff it's about four hours currently of um, aquaponics based information and it it could definitely get you moving in the right direction for sure, but we'd like to start creating a lot more, um, I was going to say nutrient-rich, <laughs> content-rich <Sure>. content <laughs> so sure. that people can really get a sense of, you know, how to build these. And as you mentioned, Murray Hallam has some great videos. Sylvia Bernstein has some great stuff. Joe Malcolm. I mean, there are so many wonderful resources uh, that have been doing this for a while and really want to share that knowledge with others. Yeah, on the Murray Hallam thing, I don't remember which one of his 3 DVDs it is, but he has one where he uses the IBC totes. Yep. Uh, and it's for the, the DIY, DIY person, yeah, the DIY, it's just a DIY video, duh. Uh, I think that would be, if, if I was going to buy one of his DVDs as a DIY person, that would be the one I would buy because, and I'm sure it's why you use them as well, they're available everywhere. You can't, yep. you, you can't not find them if you look for them. And they're affordable and, you know, they're, they're designed to last a very long time. Um, one quick thing I'll ask you about before we, we, we wrap up here, uh, your thoughts on this. One of the things I noticed in the IBCs that made me think of this, the urban farming guys, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them in uh, it's Kansas City, I think. Yep. Uh, they are doing really heavy, intensive aquaponics, but they are doing so many fish. There's just no way that the, uh, that the plants in the system can possibly utilize all the nutrients. So they're using a slow-spin filter that's filtering out a huge portion of the fish waste so that they can do more fish. And then they're taking that fish waste and using it as fertilizer in, you know, soil gardening. And yep. it just seems like that's a way to up the protein production without having to truly increase the size of the system. You can uh, absolutely do that. And, you know, there's other examples like Growing Power who suggests, you know, one fish per per, per gallon of water the challenge I would have with that is, you know, you're you're playing mother, father, nature in this ecosystem, and you want to kind of create the healthiest environment for all species. So I, yes, agree that it could be done, um, but I'm not a huge fan of packing thousands of chickens into, you know, a thousand square foot building or tons of cows into a one acre farm. 
I really, really like to create more appropriate living conditions. Okay. Um, and, you know, I, I've had people say, well, aquaponics is cool, cruel because those fish are all, you know, confined. And I'm like, well, compared to actually some of the natural waters where some of these fish uh, have been found in the past that are so polluted or so fished out or, you know, have uh, issues with PCBs or mercury, it's not such a bad deal. We test our water every day and we know yes. the water quality. So I would say personally I feel better if I have a more balanced-like ecosystem. It's uh, absolutely appropriate to reuse every waste stream, and that's kind of the, the point of aquaponics, and as in permaculture, is create no waste. Use sure. it in any implementation. Um, and so having that fish waste go to a soil-based garden or used in somewhat in your compost system makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. One quick note about IBCs um, before we wrap up. IBCs are not UV-stable, so if you do use uh, IBC and you have it outdoors, please cover it with shade cloth or, you know, some kind of a screen, wood, because that that uh, material will break down in sun. It will take a number of years, but you really don't need the polymers getting into your water, getting into sure. your fish. Does, um, painting, and the second, the external, does the, uh, painting the external side help? I think it helps some, but, you know, if you painted it, like, say, paint it black or something like that to protect the UV uh, element, then you're just going to create potentially a heat issue. Sure, the yeah. other thing is is that there, because sun and water uh, create algae, if you have sun hitting that IBC full of water, you will have an algae buildup. So the other reason to cover it, you know, with something that shields it would be to prevent an algae outbreak that you don't really need because that just consumes um, oxygen and although the fish will eat some they'll have a hard time keeping up with keeping all up. of it if it's constantly being grown well and um, you're, trying to about, you're trying to replicate a natural system as best you can and, and, right. and natural ponds lakes and rivers only have light coming in from the top they don't right you know I mean? it, there's no natural like, there, somebody's going to find some cave formation or something with crystal and prove me wrong but you know what i'm saying in general yep. light enters water bodies from the top not from the side and bottom well and so those i mean we met a lot of people this weekend who had ponds i mean you don't need to put an ivc container together as your fish tank if you have a pond already available to you that you could pump out of there's a, some really great vertical in, uh devices that can be used to hang directly over ponds or nearby, and there's been some great conversion projects to make use of the ecosystem that you already have in that pond. So, Don't you generally I, have a problem, though, with your ratio of grow media to water, though, because in a, a, you know, a pond, even a tenth of an acre pond, uh, the amount of, first, you're not going to get anywhere near the level of fish waste per square, per, per gallon. And then, so what I'm saying is, do, in those situations, do we have to then maybe use some more inputs for the plants? I've not typically seen it. In a pond-type environment, you have a pretty diverse ecosystem that's been developed over the years of having okay. that pond grow. So keep in mind that fish waste is one mechanism to um, produce this ammonia that is necessary to turn into nutrients. It's fish food. It's fish waste. But if you have snails, frogs, salamanders, um, plankton, snakes, plankton uh, algae, dead leaves floating to the bottom, every single organic creature is going to create the the ammonia. And in fact, this time of year, if you're not covering your pond, you're going to get a whole bunch of leaves in them, which is going to mean a whole lot of ammonia production. All of that is going to be usable by, you know, the nitrosomonas, nitrobacter, nitrospira that convert it to nitrates. 
And so that environment works very well. And I will use caution. In a pure permaculture environment, some people look at this and say, integrate every living creature. Put your chickens by their ducks, who cares, you know, have, have all these things. And purists will say, don't do anything but fish or you're going to start introducing bad bacteria that you can't control. And other people say, it's natural ecosystem, allow anything and everything to integrate. So you'll be the best judge of, you know, each person can make their choice about, in, in China, they have ducks, chickens, and rabbits that live in floating vessels, ponds, over, over the pond. Their mm-hmm. food and feces falls into the pond, and the fish eat that. And then the water from the fish tanks, you know, or fish ponds flows into rice paddies, for example. Correct. And so they've really bio-integrated this, you know, very closely to make it, to make it all work together. There's an amazing guy, uh, Max Myers is his name. He's in uh, NorCal Aquaponics, and he's huge into permaculture and has really made some very amazingly intensive systems um, up in Northern California. So another person to check out that, that does a great job of integrating all these things if a full-scale ecosystem is what you're going for. I just caution people with that to understand the undertaking there and oh, understand yeah. that you're not – there's a size issue with that, right? So if you're going to try to take that approach and you're going to let ducks crap in yeah. your 500-gallon <laughs> lined, you know, PVC pond, you're going to – that's not going to work. These are larger systems. No, they're no. Not huge. They're not huge. I mean, I've seen, you know, rice paddy systems, uh, Ben Falk systems up in, in Vermont. You're looking at the rice paddy individual pond fields are a 20th of an acre, if that – you know, you're looking yeah. at something that's a hundred feet by forty feet, and that works. But that's that is a surprising amount of water volume compared to even you know like your two three thousand gallon backyard fish pond. I, I think yeah, people have a real hard time getting the volume in their head with even what looks like a relatively small pond. Yeah, and I'm with you. I, I'm always about caution, which goes to say, you know, I, I have chickens, we had goats. If you are messing with animals, which are warm-blooded species and your cold water, you know, fish system, where the fish don't have bacteria that would be bad because they don't physically produce uh, pathogenic bacteria because of their cold-blooded nature, if you introduce that by riding your horse or walking through your, you know, farm and you get some of that E. coli contaminated manure into your plants or into your system, what happens is, that's a perfect environment for those bacteria to multiply voraciously because they're given warm, nutrient-rich, oxygenated environment that they wouldn't otherwise have in most other environments. So just, you know, it's a complete word of caution, and I think people are intelligent enough, hopefully, to avoid, you know, issues. Well, don't overestimate the intelligence of people at large. But I, I think people that are switched on to this type of thing are generally intelligent because that's what's got them awake in the first place. Tanya, it's been a great, great interview. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, if you ever want to come back, you're always welcome. You don't have to wait a full year again. Uh, there's always a place for you here in the lineup. Thank you. Well, it's been a busy year for us, so I just, you know, we're thinking maybe we should reconnect. All right, great. Well, we've enjoyed having you on. Folks, again, the uh, the website is coloradoaquaponics.com. Uh, I'll have links to that in the show notes. And, uh, Tanya, thank you again for being with us. Thanks, All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Tanya Sawyer, helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, 
or even if they don't. Seen our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.